This program is and has for a long time been made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, maybe you noticed and maybe you didn't, but today is the 1,000th episode of Best of the Left, so it's going to be a little bit different than normal. We're going to hear some familiar voices, some Young Turks and some Rachel Maddow and some Tom Hartman, and then some other voices that you can't even hear on the radio anymore. And here's here's the story of, of what's going on. Six or eight months ago, I realized, oh, geez, 1,000th episode is coming up. I wonder what I should do about that. And then I didn't think much about it. And then like a month ago, I thought, oh, boy, it's really coming up fast. I should probably do something about it. And the only idea I had, and, you know, it's like the most obvious thing is like, we'll do the best of the best of the left. Like, we'll find the, all the best clips from the last 10 years. And I would just laugh to myself and wonder about whose staff was going to be employed to filter through, you know, a thousand episodes. And then about three days ago, I thought, oh, man, I really should do something. Uh, maybe I'll do what the show looked and sounded like and what was going on almost exactly 10 years ago because it just so happens that it took me almost exactly 10 years to make exactly a thousand episodes i started the show in january 2006 and so what i've done over this past uh, few days is I, i've listened to the first four or five months of this show and i've pulled out some of my favorite clips from the beginning of 2006, just to give you a snapshot of what was going on then and how things felt, and that'll allow you to sort of compare to today, and it's just sort of a, a fun way to mark this occasion. So to begin with, uh, we're going to hear from the Young Turks. Uh, they were the first show I ever promoted on Best of the Left, and apparently it's worked because they now have like two and a half billion views on YouTube. Well, this first clip... It just They're having a conversation about the media, but it so happens that they are getting ready to go to their streaming video launch party. They have just launched their website's streaming video to add to their normal radio show. So this is like pre-YouTube, pre-everything. And this gives you a snapshot into what was going on with the media back then. The name Glenn Beck probably rings a bell to you. Did you know that he actually worked for CNN before he got hired on Fox News? I had forgotten that, too. We're back on the Young Turks, everybody. It's our uh, it's our launch party tonight. Uh, so in this last uh, after the show is over in three minutes, uh, we get busy. It's going crazy in there right now. Somebody get me a beer. So here's the deal. Here's what's happening with CNN, your cable news network, who I hope will employ me. Um, J Jonathan uh, Klein, the head of CNN, uh, announced yesterday that he has hired a conservative and I believe a nut job right wing talk show host Glenn Beck. Good, because you got to balance out that network. You do right. Balance out CNN. Finally, and then that comes after two weeks ago that uh, Bill Bennett uh, was hired, who made the uh, terrible comments about uh, race. A he's couple... a big liberal. Yeah, he's a huge liberal. And uh, and uh, and then just because that wasn't enough, 
today, former Oklahoma congressman uh, and Oklahoma quarterback, I might add, J.C. Watts, uh, hired successful businessman, Republican strategist, will join CNN as a regular contributor to offer analysis on politics and policy for programs throughout the network. Uh, J.C., one of the most respected and effective conservative communicators in the nation's capital, Klein said, we're glad to welcome him into the CNN team. It's good. We need, a, we need another network to three. keep Fox. In two weeks, three. Bill Bennett, Glenn Beck, J.C. Watts. Jonathan Klein, who are, who's making these decisions at CNN, you won't be uh, you won't be able to hear this if you're listening on the radio. I got a message for you. Okay, uh, you know you hire this Wolf Blitzer clown who does nothing but Republican talking points. You don't believe me? MediaMatters.org. You know Jonathan Klein. You don't want to hire me? Okay, uh, Jonathan Klein. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you go to MediaMatters.org. Type in Wolf Blitzer. See all of the bias way he covers it. Then go to all the CNN stories. How they get just talking point after talking point. And then they hire Glenn Beck. I'll give you yeah, quotes. So, look, J.C. Watson, Bill Bennett, they have some stature. I, I shouldn't hire, but I, I get it. Glenn Beck, come on, nut job. This is a horrible thing to say, Glenn Beck says, and he's right. Well, Bennett's and, a nut job. So. And I wonder if I'm alone in this. You know, it took me a, about a year to start hating the 9-11 victims' families. It took me about a year. Great job, Glenn Beck. And then he continues about the New Orleans victims, because he, he hates all victims, apparently. And that's all we're hearing about are the people in New Orleans. Those are the only ones that we're seeing on television are the scumbags. Yeah. Scumbags. Who do you think he meant by scumbags? But go, Glenn Beck, go ahead. Go, CNN, put him on the air. Give him, give him stature. And then a uh, guy calls and says he uh, uh, served in Iraq and tortured people in Iraq. And he says, I've got to tell you, I appreciate your service. Good for you. Good for, I mean, good for you. Is it because you did it for your country? I have to tell you, when all of a sudden that I'm glad people like you are on our side, the people doing the torture. He says uh, about Michael Moore, hang on, let me tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about killing Michael Moore, and I'm wondering if I could kill him myself or if I need to hire somebody to do it. No, I think I could do it. I think he could be looking into his eye, you know, and I could just be choking the life out of him. Is this wrong? Yeah, fuck yeah, it's wrong, Glenn Beck. And then these guys get hired by CNN? Yeah, liberal bias. Ha, 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 ha. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Get a clue, Jonathan Klein. Uh. You're... <laughs> Young Turks, everybody. We're going to the party. Woo! Okay, this next clip is another familiar voice for you, the Rachel Maddow show, but you have to remember that she did not have her full show on MSNBC yet at this time, so this is her old radio show. She started out as a progressive talk show host in Massachusetts and then went national with the Air America Radio Network, and so this is more talk about the media. Apparently, the story of the day was that Osama bin Laden had been heard from again. All right, every day here on The Rachel Maddow Show, we do so enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Uh, yesterday, as you know, the big story of the day was the resurfacing of the man himself, Osama bin Laden. I don't know where he is. Nor, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him. And, uh, you know, again, I don't know where he is. I... Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I repeat what I said. I truly am not that concerned about him. The Osama videotape, the transcript of his remarks, if you read it, is pretty chilling and, you know, and, and stupid and infuriating. I mean, it's, it's infuriating that Osama bin Laden, this morally bankrupt terrorist medieval hell preacher, is still out there four and a half years after 9-11. 
after all that's been done after 9-11 in the name of 9-11, that this guy is alive and well and making videotapes and threatening America again. So to me, the big headline of the day, the story of January 19th, 2006, was after four and a half years of the war on terror, Osama bin Laden is alive and well and threatening the United States again. And, you know, I... I don't pretend to think what most people think. I don't pretend to speak for a majority of anyone. I don't even think of myself as particularly mainstream. But I think it's reasonable to feel like that's what happened yesterday. Osama bin Laden resurfaced. He didn't die in that earthquake in Pakistan. He's alive. He's threatening the United States again. I don't think that's a stretch to say that's how people saw that story. I'm not making a partisan point here by describing it that way. It isn't a political story to me at all. It's, it's the facts of what emerged when we all saw that tape that ran on Al Jazeera. Except that story, the raw facts, that actual news, does have uncomfortable political implications for people who support Bush. You know, after four and a half years of the war on terror, all of these sacrifices, 2,200 American lives, hundreds of billions of dollars, the sacrifices of our civil liberties being wiretapped and the deficit and the whole Homeland Security Department and orange alerts and taking off our freaking shoes at the airport. After all of that, Osama bin Laden is doing great. He's back. He's apparently reading newspapers wherever he is and whatever cave he's in. We're basically where we, at, where, where we were at with him on, on, on September 12th. So if you're a Bush supporter, if you're on the right politically, that headline, Osama is alive and threatening the U.S. again, that headline is really inconvenient. So while we all saw that Osama tape and thought, wow, Osama is alive and threatening the U.S. again, in right-wing land, and by that I mean cable, they decided they didn't like that headline. The headline on MSNBC yesterday was not, Osama is alive and threatening the U.S. again. The headline on cable yesterday was, Osama bin Laden is a Democrat. Here's Joe Scarborough. Now, of course, Tucker, I'm not comparing these Democrats to Osama bin Laden, but look at it. First thing, Osama talks about how our troops are terrorizing women and children in Iraq. John Kerry said the same thing in front of Bob Schieffer on Face the Nation. Osama is saying that George Bush knows he can't win this war, something that Howard Dean said. And also uh, that this was launched for political reasons, uh, which, of course, Ted Kennedy said last year that this was all dreamed up in Texas for political benefit. By the merchants of war who financed Bush's presidential campaign, in the words of Osama bin Laden, and many on the left, in other words, Halliburton is responsible for this war. Every single talking point. That's Joe Scarborough and Tucker Carlson last night. Same network, here's Chris Matthews. This is from bin Laden in the audio today. There is no defect in the solution other than preventing the flow of hundreds of billions to the influential people and war merchants in America. I mean, he sounds like an over-the-top Michael Moore here, if not a Michael Moore. Same network, here's how Tucker introduced me on MSNBC last night. The war in Iraq is creating more terrorists than it's killing. It's just a war about oil and Halliburton. Hmm, sounds awfully familiar. When did Osama bin Laden start getting talking points from the DNC? Osama bin Laden getting his talking points from the DNC. I picked those three stories from M those three clips from MSNBC because I get paid by MSNBC. I work for them. When I appear on Tucker's show, I have a contract with them. And this is what happened on MSNBC before I got on the air last night. It's everywhere. It's all over, all over the right-wing media and a lot of the mainstream media today. These guys take a look at the news that Osama bin Laden is back, that he's fine. He's threatening us again four and a half years after 9-11. He's still on the loose. And they say, wow, we haven't caught that guy. 
This does not look good for Bush that we have no idea where this guy is. I don't know where he is. Nor, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him. And, uh, you know, again, I don't know where he is. I, uh, I, I, I repeat what I said. I truly am not that concerned about him. And so they say, you know, can we somehow turn this story instead into an attack on Howard Dean or Ted Kennedy? Because we know where Howard and Ted are. They're much better adversaries for us in this story than the terrorist who got away. We'd much rather fight Howard Dean and Ted Kennedy and Michael Moore than Osama. We know where they are. So let's make this a story about the Democrats. It's not just right-wing cloud cuckoo land. It's the mainstream media. This is how they're treating this. It's 27 after. When I come back at the commanding general of Abu Ghraib prison, Janice Karpinski joins me in studio. It's 27 after. This next one is a real blast from the past in a couple of different ways. First of all, you may be familiar with Mother Jones magazine, but did you know that there used to be such a thing as Mother Jones Radio? Well, this clip comes from Mother Jones Radio, and it's an interview with Helen Thomas. She began covering President-elect John F. Kennedy and was a White House correspondent all the way up until the Obama administration. She has since passed away, but at the time, she was a lion of the press corps asking questions of the Bush administration that no one else seemed to have the guts to ask. So hearing from her again is quite nostalgic and quite refreshing. I'm thrilled right now to talk to the doyen of American journalism, Helen Thomas. She has been almost six decades in the news business, on the job and as needed on the case of the White House since the Kennedy administration. She left UPI when it was taken over by the Reverend Moon. She now speaks her mind in columns for Hearst newspapers. Helen, thanks for breaking into your schedule. Mm-hmm. One, of the thi- one of the things that we see over the course of the press coverage lately, press commenting on itself, is suddenly how free they feel to speak the truth, to say when they're hearing spin, to tackle the spin. You have the long perspective. Is this something completely new, or is this something cyclical? Well, it isn't a question of cyclical. It uh, Certainly, uh, we've had our ups and downs, and uh, it was uh, the, the incredible silence and lack of skepticism and and uh, you know submission to spin was uh, very apparent uh, pre-watergate even but uh, then people be- reporters began to get uh, wise and and really realized they had been had and started asking the quest hard questions well this time I mean there's no question that Correspondents were afraid to be called unpatriotic, un-American right after 9-11. So they went into a deep silence when they should have been probing, questioning, skeptical, cynical, anything that would find out more of the truth. And uh, so I think they laid down on the jobs. They rolled over and played dead. But they're coming out of their coma now. And uh, I think uh, a series of events have led to that. They started... Uh, they got a week, I think, on, on the Carl Rove situation and started asking probing questions, and now the Katrina. 
And I don't know if it's true or not, but I had read that they were sort of unleashed now by their top bosses in New York to get angry. Well, it's about time. And anyway, uh, it isn't a question of showing your emotions or passion, but it is important to ask the questions. And none of the questions were asked at the right time in run-up to the Iraqi war when it was so clear, you know, we should have said, where's the proof? How do you know? And so forth. Nothing they said was true. Weapons of mass destruction, no ties to Al-Qaeda, I mean, no imminent threat. What is this? Hi, Jay. It's Eamon from La Habra, California, and I just want to say thanks to everything you've done. You've actually made me care a lot more about my community, about politics in general, and you've, you've given me a sense of solidarity with other people. I, I always thought that here in Orange County, I was just the only left-wing person ever, and, you know, I'm in the middle of Reagan country, so it, it, it really gives me a sense of solidarity with my fellow progressives and and you made me care about politics. You've, you've shown me new podcasts I never would have found or it would have taken me a long time, um, like Economic Update with, with Professor Richard Wolf, uh, Young Turks, you know, This Week in Blackness. All those shows really opened up my eyes and just made me really happy that I can, that I'm not alone. And so thanks a lot. I hope, here's, here's hoping to another thousand episodes. Thanks a lot. And, uh, all right. See ya. Next big story on the docket, you may know the name John Boehner. He was the House Majority Leader until just this past October when he stepped aside and Paul Ryan took his place. Well, just so happens that he took office as the Majority Leader right around the same time, February 2nd, 2006. And here is what the Rachel Maddow Show was saying about him at the time. And finally... I was able to take only one day off yesterday from covering the race to be the top Republican in the House of Representatives. I've said the majority leader race is boring and that I'll only cover it in the event that something embarrassing or amusing happens. And I just can't get away from it now. Uh, first, this spoof ad is running on the web uh, from the Campaign for America's Future about um, John, John Boner, John Boehner, whatever his name is. Booner. Bonner. Boehner. No matter how you pronounce it, you're saying the name of the next Republican majority leader of Congress. Why? Because John understands exactly what GOP members of Congress need. Cold, hard cash. John has good friends on K Street. And John has had the courage to hand money out right on the floor of Congress. Just in time to influence votes. John Bonham, I mean Baker, for Republican majority leader. He knows K Street like the palm of his hand. It's a spoof ad put out by Campaign for America's Future. This guy, John Boner, Boehner, Bonner, whatever, he put his manifesto, his vision for the Republicans on his website. We have linked to it at MattoOnline.com today. The Washington Post points out today that on page 7 of this manifesto, John Boner said something, something really weird. Uh, here's Kent Jones as John Boner. If a vision is powerful enough, and the commitment to it great enough, it might even come true. President Reagan left the White House with America much as he hoped it would be in that first inaugural address. The Nazis were defeated. And in August 1989, Poland became free. Thank you, Kent. Think about that quote. The Nazis were defeated. <laughs> By Reagan. Yeah. And that's the whole yeah. Poland thing, too. 
Greatest generation. I appreciate that. <laughs> wow. John Bonar. Go for it, man. Speaking of Congress, we're going to go back to Congress and hear from John Conyers, the longest serving congressman in the House of Representatives. He's talking with Tom Hartman. Keep it in mind again that the story about government wiretapping from the Bush administration had just broken pretty recently. This was still fresh news, and this is what they were saying about it at the time. Uh, this from Inside Magazine. The Bush administration is bracing for impeachment hearings in Congress. A coalition in Congress is being formed to support impeachment, an administration source said. Sources said a prelude to the impeachment process could begin with hearings by the Senate Judiciary Committee in February. And uh, that that could even be, you know, what what is starting with our own specter. Congressman John Conyers is with us, uh, John Conyers of Michigan. Uh, Congressman Conyers, welcome to the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings and salutations. Great to be with you. Thank you. It is always so wonderful to have you on our program, sir. Um, you You are holding hearings or have been holding hearings on some of these issues that may end up being issues around impeachment, I understand, in the in the basement of the Capitol? Uh, it's quite possible that these are questions that uh, could rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors in terms of the conduct of the, the President of the United States. And, you know, it goes back, Tom, uh, to the... Um, Downing Street memos hearing that I held in the basement as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in which, uh, we got the clearest indication that a war policy, a war against Iraq was in the makings and they were in the, uh, the process of conforming the facts to, to, uh, accommodate the policy, mm-hmm. and that, that's pretty serious when when in, when when uh, you're you're told that by uh, by high officials in Washington, and you are the chief of the uh, intelligence unit for the British government. Yes, yeah, I would think so. Now, Richard Nixon went to his grave suggesting that Article 2 of the Articles of Impeachment that were drafted against him, and I believe you were in Congress at that time, were you not? Uh, I introduced the first impeachment uh, uh, articles against a sitting president in 150 years. Oh, my goodness. Well, Bella Abzug was on them. Yep. Ron Dellums mm-hmm. was on it. Shirley Chisholm was oh. on it. Some, some William Fitz Ryan of New York was yep. on it. Now, now Richard Nixon, right up to his last days, here's his comment to David Frost. He said, "Oh, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. When the president does it, that means it's not illegal. This is the argument now that Gonzalez and Precisely. Bush are making about illegal wiretapping. Right. The and president has conceded uh, that if if you don't understand how he operates, you would think that that this is uh, that his uh, domestic wiretapping without warrant is illegal because uh, because he has deemed even though it's against the law and even though we created the FISA law to accommodate domestic wiretaps even though there there have only been four turned down in the course of the whole existence of the the 
foreign intelligence surveillance courts, even even though the head of the courts has, has resigned in disgust about this, he says, uh, look, uh, I reserve this to myself because I am the commander-in-chief. Well, he's the commander-in-chief of the military. He's not the commander-in-chief of uh, secret intelligence. Or of the United States. Or of the United States. Yeah. So what, what we have here, to me, uh, and, and I think the reason that they are tackling it with uh, such aggressiveness is that we, we're not now talking about constitutional niceties, as important as they are, that this is a tripartite government. Uh, what we're doing now uh, is, is telling people that your phone could be tapped by the President of the United States direction, uh, anybody, everybody, no exclusions. And, and he says that regardless of what the law says on this, uh, he is the last word. Precisely what Nixon, as you point out, said all the way to his grave. I would just like to point out that John Conyers is still in office. He won his original congressional race in 1964 and won his most recent election in 2014. So he's still around and still kicking ass. Next clip. Now, I assume everyone heard about the Charlie Hebdo bombing in response to cartoons about the Prophet Muhammad, etc., etc., did you know that that is not nearly the first time that has happened? Again, almost exactly 10 years ago, in February 2006, Denmark happened to be the country on the receiving end of anger over cartoons, and the Young Turks were talking about it at the time. So there's there's more uh, there's more protests about uh, the uh, uh, you know Wednesday four about the cartoons. Wednesday four people killed, at least 20 wounded in a fresh round of protests in uh, in southern Afghanistan. Uh, demonstrators in the West Bank city of Hebron attacked the offices of international observers, forcing their evacuation. President Bush yesterday spoke out about it for the first time. You know I didn't catch a lot of that. So he just said, "Hey, d d bad boy, don't do that." Uh, we reject violence as a way to express discontent with what with what may be printed in a free press. Okay, I totally agree with Bush on there. You yeah. see that? Yeah, you as long as he says something reasonable, no reason to disagree with him. So I'm reading this. Uh, by the way, uh, but the only thing that I'll, I'll laugh about, and it, it doesn't mean he shouldn't do it. He should do it. I love the idea of Bush telling the Muslims what to do. Yeah, that's yeah, right. because they're going to listen to that, right? Well, I was oh, oh, we were going to riot, but uh, George Bush says not yeah. to riot. Maybe we ought to hold back. I was going to burn the Danish flag, but uh, never mind. Uh, w says not a good idea. <laughs> um, so there were just some quotes in here that I loved, and it's something that I said early on, and now the, the LA Times has come out with this piece from uh, Jeffrey Fleischman, which is the Danes have got to be like, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Like, we're Denmark. Yeah, they have no idea what hit him. So anyway, this card, this piece is called Rage Over Cartoons, Perplexes Denmark. <laughs> I love that title, uh, Perplexes Denmark. Here's a quote from a guy named Morton Rickson. He's a philosophy student in Copenhagen. A lot of Danes have problems understanding what is going on and why people in those countries reacted this way, he said. We're used to seeing American flags and pictures of George Bush being burnt. <laughs> but we've always seen ourselves as a more tolerant nation. We're in shock uh, now to be in the center of this. So I, I was amused by that, certainly. Uh, 
Um, well, it's ironically their tolerance that got them in trouble because they have you know tolerance of all speech. So they, you know, allow those cartoons, even right. though they're offensive, and that's what gets them in trouble. Denmark, a small portrait of Europe's struggle, it says here, to integrate a Muslim population that has doubled since the late 1980s, dotted the continent with headscarves and back alley mosques. So, and, Dan and Denmark is dealing with sort of some anti-immigrant sentiment, and this, this anti-immigrant party increased, their, they're now the third, uh, most, uh, the third uh, most powerful party in Denmark. Recent polls reveal a country of torn emotions and doubt, the piece says. The Danish People's Party, that's the right-wing party I spoke of, has gained three percentage points, but so has its nemesis, the radical left party. Oh, yeah, that's the one we're supposed to have in this country, right. but I haven't seen it in I don't know how many years. Well, we're never going to have a party called that in this country. <laughs> yeah, because you imagine, yeah, those about, guys on the radical left. I mean, they're like, those, yes, that's us. Those guys, <laughs> they need some help framing. The right-wing party is called the Danish People's Party. The left-wing party is called the radical left. The word <laughs> radical is in the title of their party. Hey, they're proud, man. Yeah. You know, only if our left was as strong. <laughs> Here's a quote from a guy named Michael Hansen. He's an engineer. He says, I don't know what to do. It's amazing to see the Danish flag being burned. It's not fear. It's more, he said, it's not causing fear, but anxiety. There have been terror attacks in the U.S., Spain, and in Britain. We're the logical fourth. If they forgot about us, now they've remembered us. Uh-oh, Denmark's got Joe Mentum. <laughs> I don't think Denmark is the logical fourth. Yeah, but, <laughs> but apparently at this time, now it now, is. Now it is because of the Crazy. cartoons. Jay, my name is Nancy. I am calling from San Francisco. I love the idea of hosting your favorite episodes for your thousandth episode that's going to air on Tuesday. I just wanted to let you know that I have found your show in March of 2013 from a colleague at work who listens to podcasts. I'd never listened to any podcast before. She introduced me to Stitcher Radio. Since then, I have been a fan. Through your show, I have found David Packman, The Young Turks, Professional Left, and The Jimmy Gore Show. It has essentially changed my life dramatically. I no longer listen to TV or any kind of regular corporate media. And um, I've been a fan of yours ever since. I have never left a voicemail, so I'm a little bit nervous. But I just wanted to let you know that my favorite episode, I guess, would be episodes where you talk about the TPP, which I knew nothing about. Um, and now it's a very big issue for me. Thank you so much for all the work that you put together, all the different people that you get on your show um, to talk. It's been life-changing for me, and I thank you so much. Have a great thousands episode, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Jay. The way I see it, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who either don't remember or maybe were too young or just never heard about Dick Cheney shooting his friend in the face while quail hunting. And then there are the people who remember it but need slash would enjoy a little refresher on, on that particular topic. Again, this was February 2006. I don't know what was going on in that period. Uh, I guess I picked an especially good time to start doing the show because all kinds of mayhem and mischief was afoot uh, that has like stood the test of time and is fun to reminisce about. So this is The Daily Show's take on that story. 
I'm joined now by uh, our own Vice Presidential Firearms Mishap Analyst, Rob Cordry. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Uh, obviously, Rob, uh, just, uh, a very unfortunate situation. How is the Vice President handling it? John, tonight the Vice President is standing by his decision to shoot Harry Whittington. <laughs> Now, according to the best intelligence available, there were quail hidden in the brush. Everyone believed at the time there were quail in the brush. And while the quail turned out to be a 78-year-old man, even knowing that today, Mr. Cheney insists he still would have shot Mr. Whittington in the face. John... Come on, that's brilliant. That's just brilliant. He believes the world is a better place for his spreading buckshot throughout the entire region of Mr. Whittington's face. Well, Rob, why? Why, if he had known that Mr. Whittington was not a bird, if he had, if he'd had that information, Rob, why would the vice president still have shot him in the face? John, good question. In a post-9-11 world, the American people... The American people expect their leaders to be decisive. To not have shot his friend in the face would have sent a message to the quail that America is weak. Well, that is, uh, I have to say, it's to my ears, that is, that is horrible that he would still do that. Uh, look, John, the mere fact that we're even talking about how the vice president drives up with his rich friends in cars to shoot farm-raised wingless quail tards is letting the quail know how we're hunting them. Uh, sure, right now, those birds are laughing at us in that little covey of theirs. Well, Rob, I'm, I'm not sure birds can laugh. Well, whatever they do, John, coo. They're cooing at us right now. Because here we are, talking openly about our plans to hunt them. Jigs up, John. Quails won. America zero. Happy? On a purely human level, on a human level, is the vice president at least sorry? John, what difference does it make? The bullets are already in the man's face. Let's move forward across party lines as a people to get him some sort of mask. Hindsight is 2020, John, as was, ironically, the shotgun the vice president used to shoot his friend, a 78-year-old man, in what can only be described as his face. Ah, those were the days, and I'm just now realizing that the clips I pulled on this topic don't even include the fact that Harry Whittington, the man shot in the face by Dick Cheney, held a press conference in which he extended his condolences slash somewhat apologized to Dick Cheney and his family. So I found this today. Check it out. This past weekend encompassed all of us in a cloud of misfortune and sadness that is not easy to explain, <clears throat> especially to those who are not familiar with the great sport of quail hunting. We all assume certain risks in whatever we do, whatever activities we pursue, and regardless of how experienced, careful, and dedicated we are. <clears throat> accidents do and will happen, and that's what happened last Friday. 
My family and I are deeply sorry for all that Vice President Cheney and his family have had to go through this past week. We send our love and respect to them as they deal with with situations that are much more serious than what we've had this week. And we hope that he will continue to come to Texas and seek the relaxation that he deserves. And I have more on this topic. The next clip I have for you in just a minute is one of my favorites. First of all, I assume there are probably a lot of people who are unclear on exactly who Al Franken is, uh, you know, a lot of new or younger listeners. Currently, he's a senator from Minnesota. Previously, a long time ago, when I was a kid, he was on Saturday Night Live. He was also a satirist. He wrote books including Rush Limbaugh as a Big Fat Idiot, as well as Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them. He was also the headlining host on Air America Radio, the ill-fated progressive radio network back in the day. So things have changed quite a bit. Uh, now, as for more things that have changed in the last 10 years since I started this show, there were no ads back then, and there are now. Speaking of which, today's episode is sponsored by Harry's. They're the company taking the shaving industry by storm with their incredibly high-quality razors and shaving products that they sell directly by mail for a fraction of the cost of the big-name brands. I've been using Harry's for over a year now, and with my irregular schedule, I usually shave sometime in the afternoon. And what Harry's razors do that no other brand ever has is that after I shave in the afternoon and then sleep in a full night... I wake up and I still feel as though I've just shaved that morning. And frankly, it was kind of startling the first time it happened. And now I guess I just have high standards. And luckily, a bunch of money left over that I've saved by switching to Harry's. So you should probably check them out for yourself. They don't really do discounts because their prices are already really low, but they are offering a special deal on your first order. Harry's will give you $5 off with promo code BEST. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now that's h-a-r-r-y-s dot com and enter the code best at checkout and now let's hear that old clip from the al franken show here's something i i this is more in the way of an observation and i know i'm not the first to make this observation about the cheney hunting accident they keep saying this happens all the time don't they yeah they keep saying that, that people get peppered with birdshot all the time, that this is part of the culture of Texas that we don't understand. Show me a Texan that hasn't been shot in the face. Come on. Well, I mean, that's sort of what they're saying. Something's wrong with the te- culture of Texas, isn't there? Okay, and now the same people who keep saying, well, this happens all the time, are also the people who are saying, like, I can't believe that you've been focusing on the the 14 hours before it came out or the 18 hours or focusing on on all this 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 sinister stuff when you haven't been focusing on Vice President Cheney's emotional toll <laughs> and this poor man shot a friend and why aren't you I mean Norm Coleman said this why don't we spend more time thinking about this poor guy who shot a friend. I wish we'd do more about that. Now, if this is so traumatic, but it happens all the time, <laughs> what? Isn't that something odd that that these guys go out and so frequently end up traumatized by what they're doing? I mean, that's what. That's the only way. That's the only way these things fit together. 
is that this is part of their of their deal. They go out there and have a very, very, very high frequency. There's a big chance when you go out on your weekend that you're going to be traumatized. <laughs> I mean, and that you're going to experience the worst moment of your life, or one of the worst moments of your life. Of your life. It's it's a tragedy. And 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 so to endure this horrible personal tragedy so often, which just evidently they'd say I've been, you know, all these Republicans from Texas go like, oh, you guys don't understand Texas culture. This happens. Everybody. See. Ya. And 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 so to me, to endure this horrible tragedy so often must mean that quail hunting is just unbelievably great. <laughs> it must be so much fun. It must be like that uh, those people that um sort of hang themselves when they have they have auto sex. Autoerotic asphyxiation. Yeah. yeah. Now that's very dangerous. But the experience, I guess, I certainly would never do anything like this because of the danger, you see. That that that, that must be such a high that they'll they're willing to you see, to to undergo the, the, the danger. And it's not even that frequent, I don't think, the the danger. This is really frequent. People get peppered all the time. And yet it is an enormously traumatic tragedy when it happens. Am I making any sense here? Does, does, does See, this... The only thing I can think of is you're assuming that for every shooting victim, there is exactly one shooter. What if there's one shooter who's causing all sorts of accidents? That might reduce the numbers a little bit. I'm saying I... that Dick Cheney may have shot many people in the face, and we just haven't heard of No, 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 because Nothing. he's saying this is one of the worst days of his life. If he had shot a whole bunch of people, it wouldn't be one of the worst days. It'd be one of many days that are terrible. I'm saying it, what what we say when when you hear these people, you hear the Mary Madeleines, who I'm sure has never gone hunting in dinner. I don't know if she has, <laughs> but you hear these people and they're going like, "You just don't know Texas. This happens all the time." And by the way, it's incredibly dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Hey Jay, this is Jack from Atlanta. I just wanted to give my feedback on the 1000th episode and how and why I started listening. Basically, back in 2014 in the summer, as somebody of Jewish descent, I was looking for less wing responses to the uh, conflict in Gaza, and I just wasn't finding it because everywhere you look, you know, they were saying, you know, essentially it's a Palestinian assault, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, I, I typed in, you know, left wing Israel into. Uh, iTunes, and I came up with your podcast, and I listened to that one episode you did, you did on Israel with clips from, I think, Truth Out and a bunch of other podcasts, but anyway, after that, I was sort of hooked, and started listening to it, and it's, so it's been about two years, and uh, you know, now I started subscribing, and I, uh, I do really look forward to listening to it twice a week, so uh, yeah, thanks again, keep up the good work, bye. 
This past August was the 10-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, so as you might imagine, in March 2006, there was still a lot of talk going on about Hurricane Katrina. It was still fresh in everyone's mind. The ramifications were still very much playing themselves out, and news was still coming out about allegations and obfuscations and so on. So again, this is the no longer in existence Mother Jones Radio talking about the uh, hurricane and its aftermath. One story the U.S. news media has got to stay on top of is Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath. What happened there, why, and how it can be avoided in the future, and all the corollary stories as New Orleans and its surrounding cities are rebuilt, like racism and gentrification. We're already seeing that. The politics that killed people must not be forgotten. Co's Jay Harris and Peter Laufer drove that point home on our show. Jay, when the president finally got back to Washington, he acted really surprised on the program Good Morning America. I don't think anybody anticipated the breach of the levees. In fact, the breach of the levees were anticipated by many people. In fact, in June of 2002, there was a five-part series in the New Orleans Times-Picayune, written by John McQuaid and Mark Schleifstein, that spelled out in great detail the likelihood that New Orleans would be flooded by even a relatively mild hurricane if it breached the levees. I don't think anybody anticipated the breach of the levees. And in the National Geographic, well before the storm, was a typical National Geographic scenario painted in an article that read in part, Big Easy was buried under a blanket of putrid sediment. A million people were homeless and 50,000 were dead. It was the worst natural disaster in the history of the United States. When did this calamity happen, the article asks? It hasn't yet, but the doomsday scenario is not far-fetched. The Federal Emergency Management Agency lists, according to the National Geographic, well before the hurricane, a hurricane strike on New Orleans as one of the most dire threats to the nation. I don't think anybody anticipated the breach of the levees. But that's not all. Jay, we've got a stack of papers on this desk. What's the next one? Of course, in addition to the Times-Picayune and National Geographic, the National Public Radio aired a two-part series in September of 2002 by Daniels Whirling. They did a similar analysis. Uh, just a couple of days ago, David Folkenflik of the National NPR.org website said how haunting it must be for a news organization to fulfill its core function by sounding the alarm as the public's watchdog and then go unheeded. I don't think anybody anticipated the breach of the levees. But it's not just the Times-Picayune, National Geographic, and NPR. In The Prospect, earlier this year in May, Chris Mooney wrote about exactly this type of storm, saying such a storm plowing over the lake could generate a 20-foot surge that would easily overwhelm the levees of New Orleans, which only protect against a hybrid Category 2 or Category 3 storm. Soon the geographical bowl of the Crescent City would fill up with the waters of the lake, leaving those unable to evacuate with little option but to cluster on rooftops, terrain they would have to share with hungry rats, fire ants, snakes, and perhaps alligators. I don't think anybody anticipated the breach of the levees. The outrage and the frustration of that kind of disconnect with President Bush was captured beautifully by our listener, Adam Contras. We want his song to be heard again in full and its lessons remembered. Here is Leaderless State, and he starts by featuring the voice of New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin. Damn shit. 
This is Megan from Seattle. I first found the show a few months ago. I finally got a phone that I could listen to podcasts on, and I got super into it, um, and I just Googled best social justice podcasts because I, I didn't know what else to do, um, and I, I found the show, and I started listening, and I, I loved it. And it's impacted me because I, I'm a high school senior, and I'm transferring from being a kid into or a teen into being an adult. Um, I turned 18 in about two months. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always been into social justice where I live, Seattle with my family, um, and uh, Tumblr lately, the past couple years. And this show has just helped me feel more grown up, I guess, in my political standings. I've learned so much, and it's helped me feel a lot more confident and having political discussions, especially, you know, I don't learn this stuff in school. I don't, I don't know if they can teach us this stuff in school. And yeah, it's just helped me become really confident as a young person growing up in this day and age. I can vote for the first time this November. Um, and so this show has just really helped me solidify my opinions, helped me think about things. So yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Um, thanks so much. All right, let's get some context for this one. A few months before I started my show, at the at the end of 2005, Supreme Court Justice, moderate conservative Sandra Day O'Connor, appointed by Ronald Reagan, resigned her seat from the bench rather than dying in office, as some do. She resigned because her husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, so she wanted to get away from the Supreme Court and have time with him and time to take care of him and so forth. That open spot 
led to Samuel Alito being put on the bench by George W. Bush, of course, very, very unfortunately. And so a few months pass, and now it's March 2006, and a report comes out that Sandra Day O'Connor has given a speech with a few very noteworthy nuggets in it, and it was not recorded at all, but an NPR reporter was there and filed a report on it. Supreme Court justices keep many opinions private, but a former justice is speaking out. Yesterday, Sandra Day O'Connor criticized Republicans who criticized the courts. She said the critics challenged the independence of judges and the freedoms of all Americans. Her speech at Georgetown University was not available for broadcast, but NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg was there. In an unusually forceful and forthright speech, O'Connor said that attacks on the judiciary by some Republican leaders pose a direct threat to our constitutional freedoms. O'Connor began by conceding that courts do have the power to make presidents or the Congress or governors, as she put it, really, really angry. But she continued, if we don't make them mad some of the time, we probably aren't doing our jobs as judges. And our effectiveness, she said, is premised on the notion that we won't be subject to retaliation for our judicial acts. The nation's founders wrote repeatedly, she said, that without an independent judiciary to protect individual rights from the other branches of government, those rights and privileges would amount to nothing. But, said O'Connor, as the Founding Fathers knew, statutes and constitutions don't protect judicial independence, people do. And then she took aim at former House GOP leader Tom DeLay. She didn't name him, but she quoted his attacks on the courts at a meeting of the conservative Christian group Justice Sunday last year when DeLay took out after the courts for rulings on abortion, prayer, and the Terry Schiavo case. This, said O'Connor, was after the federal courts had applied Congress's one-time-only statute about Schiavo as it was written, not, said O'Connor, as the congressman might have wished it were written. The response to this flagrant display of judicial restraint, said O'Connor, her voice dripping with sarcasm, was that the congressman blasted the courts. It gets worse, she said, noting that death threats against judges are increasing. It doesn't help, she said, when a high-profile senator suggests there may be a connection between violence against judges and decisions that the senator disagrees with. She didn't name him, but it was Texas Senator John Cornyn who made that statement after a Georgia judge was murdered in the courtroom and the family of a federal judge in Illinois murdered in the judge's home. O'Connor observed that there have been a lot of suggestions lately for so-called judicial reforms, recommendations for the massive impeachment of judges, stripping the courts of jurisdiction, and cutting judicial budgets to punish offending judges. Any of these might be debatable, she said, as long as they are not retaliation for decisions that political leaders disagree with. I, said O'Connor, am against judicial reforms driven by nakedly partisan reasoning. Pointing to the experiences of developing countries and former communist countries where interference with an independent judiciary has allowed dictatorship to flourish, O'Connor said we must be ever vigilant against those who would strong-arm the judiciary into adopting their preferred policies. It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, she said, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. What's interesting is that I wonder if the warrantless spying case had come along, which seems to be what has sort of provoked her, which is the outreach of executive authority. Now, we'd seen it in the Hamden case already at that point, but not 
but this was the most blatant sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, excessive example of, uh, of executive authority. I wonder whether that would have changed her mind if that had sort of shown up first, because that seemed to be primarily what she was talking about. But she she's the one who ruled in Humdi versus Rumsfeld that the president does not have a blank check in times of war. She already knew that the president wanted a blank check and was going to get one from anyone. No, who no, would I know, but well, I wonder here whether this is. But the thing about the warrantless spying is that it, it is an affront to two the other two branches of government. It says we're not going to go to the judicial branch to get warrants. Like the legislative branch says, it's a double whammy. And I, I, I mean, I, we'll never know the, well, we might know, somebody could ask her. I just find it curious that that was sort of the clincher for a lot of people that, uh, a lot of scholars, a lot of constitutional scholars, of which obviously as a, as a former court member she would be one, that they were like, okay, these guys are totally out of bounds. They were out of bounds before, now they've, now they've left the playing in their, the, the field and they're playing in the parking lot. By the way, you know, 80s, 90s, for a large portion of the 90s, O'Connor was considered not even close to a moderate, just simply conservative. Then she became a moderate when everybody else shifted to the right, so-called moderate conservative still. She's like a creepy tree hugger now. <laughs> right, because she's in she favor of democracy. She runs in the rain and throws paint on people wearing fur. That's right. That's weird that she's done that. That was a surprising thing. You're like, hey, I thought you were taking care of your husband, and here you are sort of throwing paint on Paris Hilton. It seems inappropriate for a former Supreme Court justice. Sandra Day O'Connor, screaming liberal. Well, here is what this conservative voice uh, from the Supreme Court has to say about the state of our country. Now, she said a lot, and it was a great speech, and I encourage all of you to check it out. Common Dreams has, uh, has a link that explains what she said in her dream, uh, commondreams.org, in her dream, I'm sorry, in her speech. But I just want to give you one quote, which I absolutely loved. She says, quote, It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. Now, that is a powerful, powerful statement to be made from somebody who was on the Supreme Court and who's from the same party appointed by Ronald Reagan and gave George Bush the presidency in that 5-4 to four decision. She's, talking, she's warning specifically about a dictatorship in this country and saying, by the way, exactly what we say on this show. We're not there. We're not at the end. But she said it a lot more eloquently than we did. We should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. Yeah, that's a. Uh, and by the way, that struck me as I mentioned on the show on Friday. Um, and it wasn't, by the way, real quick about Wes Clark. His point: he wasn't so much angry. He was like, "Yeah, big deal. A lot of good. You could have done something about it." Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was more. Like fr- it was more frustration. But uh, you know, as you know, I object to all the fascism stuff because I think it distracts from how bad they are. Because it causes a lot of people to go, they're not fascists for crying out loud, and it causes them not to listen to the really good points about how so far out of bounds and how dangerous these guys are. That's a great point. I mean, she's not. She doesn't even suggest that we're headed toward fascism. But why would you even? Why would you even take the first couple of steps? Like, well, even if they're thirty steps, why would you take one, two, and three? Uh, you know what? It, it, the reason I love this quote and brought it back up is because, I mean, I think it summarizes three years of our show in one simple, wonderfully eloquent sentence. Yeah. It takes a lot of degeneration before a country falls into dictatorship, but we should avoid these ends by avoiding these beginnings. I mean, God bless you, Sandra Day O'Connor. I just, we all wish you'd stayed on the Supreme Court to say that. And here we are, quote-unquote, liberal show, saying we wish a Reagan appointee, conservative to, at most, a moderate Republican stayed on the court. Hey, Jay, this is Josh from Lafayette, Louisiana. 
Um, I actually only discovered your podcast fairly recently, probably within the past month or so. I'm really glad I did. Uh, with all the craziness going on in the election cycle, it's really neat to have all these unique takes in cohesive, well-curated topics. My own view is it's really helped me sort of reevaluate my thoughts and, and ideas, strengthen some of my views, give me a different way of thinking of things. Um, and it's made me a more knowledgeable voter and citizen, really. My favorite part of your show, though, I have to say, is the dialogue, especially with conservatives that call in like Wade, and just even just different sides of the liberal spectrum. It's really neat to have, have the back and forth, and it be really a dialogue instead of an argument. Imagine that, a dialogue instead of an argument. Well, thanks. And the shakeup of Congress continues. As I said, John Boehner was coming into office just about this time. And then only a couple months later, in April 2006, Tom DeLay announced that he was going to resign from Congress. And if you don't know who Tom DeLay is, uh, I will just say that the liberals were very, very excited to see him go. And here are a couple of clips from the Rachel Maddow show and the Young Turks explaining why. First story on today's Rachel Maddow show front page uh, is the biggest political bombshell to break over Washington in quite some time. The hammer has fallen. The exterminator is checking into the Roach Motel. The whip apparently is whipped. Tom DeLay stepping down. Not only is he not going to run for re-election this November, he is apparently going to resign in either May or June. We are expecting some uh, official announcement from DeLay sometime this morning. They have released a little bit of a statement from him. We've got a little audio of that that I'll be playing for you in just a moment. In the meantime, here's what we know. Tom DeLay is the guy who, who more than any other single Republican in Congress, any other single Republican politician anywhere has helped shape Republican politics in Washington. This is the guy who got them holding open uh, votes for hours to squeeze out one last vote. This is the guy who got Republicans redistricting all the states to give their candidates an advantage in congressional elections. This is the guy who led the impeachment of President Clinton. This is the guy who turned the whole lobbying industry in Washington into part of the Republican Party. And yes, this is the guy who apparently had a criminal corruption and bribery operation running out of his office for much of the past decade. That's according to the charges to which a second Tom DeLay staffer just pled guilty on Friday. Those court papers call Tom DeLay representative number two, which is never good in court papers. Also, it's just embarrassing to ever be called number two. Anyway, uh, but Tom DeLay's former press secretary and his former deputy chief of staff have both pled guilty. They're both turning state's evidence. Jack Abramoff, who Tom DeLay called one of my closest and dearest friends, also pled guilty, also turned state's evidence. Tom DeLay himself charged last fall with money laundering and campaign finance violations. His trial starts later this year. He is the corruption and bribery center of the universe. So how does the mainstream media explain that he's finally quitting? He's taking one for the team, they're saying. He's not doing this for himself. No, he just wants to be sure the Republican Party doesn't suffer a loss if he has trouble retaining his House seat this year. Here's Chris Matthews straining the bounds of credibility last night on MSNBC. He is one tough politician. Yes, he is. And for him to say uh, that he's got to throw in the towel in the interest of the party so that they can save this seat. In the interest of the party, just to save his seat. Now, I need to talk about corruption or his urgent need to keep himself out of prison. Now, he's just doing what's best for the party. He's an honorable strategist. 
If you don't buy that line, then how about this one? Mike Allen of Time Magazine says Tom DeLay is resigning so he can spend more time helping orphans. He said that he wants to go out and talk about uh, foster care, the importance of religion and government, and electing more Republicans. Pay no attention to people turning state's evidence all around him. Just repeat what Tom DeLay tells you in your exclusive interviews. I'm resigning to help the Republican Party. Or orphans. No, I'm resigning to help orphans. That's it. Now, by the way, an ode to Tom DeLay coming up a little bit later in the show, and obviously we'll take all of your calls on what you think of this great uh, day in America as Tom DeLay steps down. And we'll explain also, of course, why it is such a great day. And a perfect setup to that is uh, the quotes that you guys have compiled at the Center for American Progress, Christy. Uh, it gives you a sense of why everybody's so ecstatic that Tom DeLay is gone, not just because of the corruption, but because he's a loathsome guy. Otherwise, and it shows. It shows. Sorry, Christy. It just shows the value with even with George Bush, with Dick Cheney, with Tom Delay, with all these guys, these sort of un-American, blatantly corrupt guys. That there's so many horrible stories that you forget, and it's great when you remind yourself and put it all together, and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. They're they're, they're this bad, and so. All right. So well, that's the thing is, I started thinking this morning about all the different corruptions he's been involved with, and thought, you know, I'm probably forgetting a few, and started to look. And then I started to find some of these quotes, and I thought, oh, my God, I had completely forgotten he's that guy. So, Christy, now, he came out today and talked about how much time he wants to dedicate to foster children. So, yes. um, working off one of his quotes, what do you think um, a planned activity could be for these foster children that he's going to help out? Well, um, I'm not sure, um, but I'm pretty sure that maybe they could go camping in the Astrodome. Definitely, maybe after losing their home and families and, right. and, and See, swimming around in feces. He's the guy that after these poor kids lost everything and had to be air-vacked to the Astrodome where they, yeah, lived in absolute squalor and filth, he stopped by and said, hey, guys, aren't you guys having some fun here? Oh, and so. they were having fun. He he uh, took the same talking point as Barbara Bush there. Now, right. um, a lot a lot of these other loathsome people in the um, in the conservative group have great excuses as to why they didn't join forces in Vietnam. Rush Limbaugh had a tail. Uh, Dick Cheney, I forget what he was doing, but he was too busy. Uh, he was just too busy. And now, other priorities. Now, why why did Tom Delay not go? Well, this is my favorite one. Tom Delay could not go to Vietnam. Because of affirmative action. <laughs> he, he said, and this is a direct quote, he said that he missed out on serving in Vietnam because, quote, so many minority youths volunteered. There literally was no room for patriotic folks like myself. But there's so much to love about yeah, that right. quote, but the one that I particularly enjoy is that obviously the minority youths are not part of the patriotic no, folks like the, himself. The subtext well, right, is, that's right. the best part, is that no room for patriotic folks like myself, unlike the Hispanics and the coloreds. Since, right. since all these minorities signed up to die, there was, you know, no room for patriotic people like me. It's just the unpatriotic uh, African-American and Latin, Latino kids who wanted to die for their country. You know? Right, they're just being selfish. They're just being selfish by not letting Tom DeLay serve. Now, I've saved one of my favorite for the climax, the middle of this segment. I fancy myself a woman. Um, I fancy myself a radio host. Yes. I've often labeled myself a daughter. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to argue with those. Yeah. What is one of the things that Tom DeLay considers himself? Well, actually, I'm glad you asked that, Joe. He's Jesus. <laughs> um, he was talking about how he wanted to. He came to D.C. He came to Washington 
and wanted to get into national politics because he wanted to bring a biblical worldview mm. to the country. And he was asked by a reporter, um, Tom, what if a lot of people don't want a biblical worldview? Mm-hmm. And he, he actually said the truth hurts. It's human nature not to face that. People hate the messenger. That's why they killed Christ. So, so he's claimed he's Jesus in uh, he's Jesus, in, in, yes. in his own words, and this is going to help him in his uh, in, in in his next line of work after he leaves Congress because he wants to find a way to meld government and religion together. So, as the face of Jesus and what he uh, considers himself as the federal government, which he oh yes, yeah. <laughs> that's my other favorite. That's my other favorite. He can go so, forward without anyone's help. Yeah, he was smoking in a federal building. A staffer came over and said, gee whiz, Mr. DeLay, you can't smoke in here. Uh, it's a federal building. The federal, federal government says you can't smoke. And he turned around and said, I am the federal government. It, sounds it was a like, total Jack Nicholson moment. I was going to say, it sounds like, uh, yeah, it does. It's, it totally sounds like a line in a movie you wouldn't believe. I was going to go no, with... No, Alec Baldwin. I was going to go with Alec Baldwin. That's yeah. exactly, yeah. I am oh. God. I am the federal government. Yeah. I am okay, Jesus. You guys, you guys went on that one. <laughs> That's even better. Uh, you know, look, all those, of course, are loathsome. And by the way, as he was talking about the separation of church and state, he also said that uh, he believes the separation of church and state is a myth. Yeah. Right. So, so if it was up to Tom DeLay, he would have combined church and state already. But actually, uh, you know, and all these Republicans go nuts whenever Dick Turbin or anybody else ever mentions the Nazi word and compares it to anything else. But what did Tom DeLay have to say about the Envi- Environmental Protection Agency, Christy? Well, that's why he got into politics in the first place, because he used to be, as we all know, an exterminator. And he didn't like the government regulations about uh, his poisons. And so he used to walk around and say that the EPA was the Gestapo of government. <laughs> the yeah. Gestapo of government. So. Yeah, I mean, trying to protect the environment, that sounds like a brown shirt to me. Yeah, and also... Absolutely. How dare they? I would just like to point out that the problems with the Nazis and the Gestapo wasn't that they were trying to restrict access to poison. Yeah, right. they, were, they were trying to spread it more. By the way, uh, here's another one on religion. Co- Columbine, uh, apparently he had figured out why Columbine happened. That could have really helped authorities. What was his theory, Christy? Well, DeLay blamed the shootings on at Columbine, not on Marilyn Manson, not on video games, but he really put the blame where it counts. He said it was a bad... He said that Columbine wouldn't have happened, but the school systems were teaching kids there were nothing but glorified apes. And I didn't put it in here. Later on in that same speech, he also blamed it on daycare and working mothers. Yeah, nothing but glorified apes, DeLay said, who are evolutionized out of some primordial soup. Yes. That if you teach the kids that, of course, they'll wind up killing each other. Absolutely. That's why you need to teach the Bible in public school. We only got time for one final one here, Christy. Uh, Tax cuts uh, during a war. This is this is really recent. This is right yeah. before we invaded Iraq. And he said, people said, shouldn't we not cut taxes going into a war? And he said, nothing is more important in the face of a war than cutting taxes. Yeah, how about casting Osama bin Laden? That would seem like that would be a little bit more important. How about planning for the war? Yeah, that would I was, be a little yeah, bit Yeah, I was thinking more. about exit strategies. Yeah, yeah or f- figuring out if there's going to be a civil war. No, cutting taxes is more important. Chrissy Harvey for the Center for American Progress. Thanks for putting this together to remind us what a bad guy left office today. Hi, Jay. This is Aaron from Philly, answering your call for voicemails for the thousandth episode. I found Best of the Left via the Recommended Podcasts tab on my Podcatcher app probably four to five years ago now. Just scrolling through a couple of the show notes for the episodes that were available on the feed 
at that time. It looked like exactly the kind of thing I was looking for to help get me through what at the time was an incredibly boring data entry job. After listening for about a year, I took the jump to become a member, and I've been a member and listener ever since. Quick plug for membership for people who may not have done it yet. I know this isn't a membership drive, but at the basic level, hey, it's less than a buck a show. What more could you ask for? In any case, the value of this show to me has been not just the very well-curated episodes that Jay puts together, but the introduction it's given me to other great progressive media. I've since become a follower and member of other shows, particularly uh, The Young Turks, This Week in Blackness, which are networks in their own right, and have just really expanded my media universe and given me um, a whole lot more to think about, a whole lot more to talk about with my friends online. So I can't thank you enough for putting this show together, Jay. Keep doing what you do and keep staying awesome. This next one's not really on a topic per se, but it's from Al Franken, and I think it's funny. And I didn't have very many Al Franken clips in those early days. I, I think I ended up using more and more of him as the time went on until he went off the air, of course. But I just want to throw this one in for fun. Interesting hate mail today. Uh, this is from Farley L. Hatcher, and uh, it's hate mail from the left. Ooh, really? Mm-hmm. My learned friend Al, why don't you ever read hate mail from the left? I'm sick of you patsy-faced... I think pasty. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I'm sick of you pasty-faced white peace creeps on Air America pretending to be liberal or progressive. You have all sat back and allowed the Hannity's and Limbaugh's to define liberal and to create straw men that they can burn every day. You phonies posing as progressives are just like dogs barking at everything but then are lower than dogs because you don't want to fight. But think that there is some common ground to be reached. Screw that. There is no common ground. And this is why people are losing respect for the minority party. They stand for nil. Kindest regards, Farley. Farley, you got a good point. Sometimes we liberals can be too wishy-washy, and uh, on the other hand, we d- we do have to appeal to people in the middle, the independents who determine who wins elections. If you don't win, you can't affect the kind of change that I know that uh, you, Farley, uh, and we believe in. On the other hand, you do make a good point that by trying to find common ground, we may seem like we stand for nothing. So, Farley, thanks for your critique. I've assigned a committee to reread it and uh, make some recommendations. We should have uh, those recommendations uh, by sometime after the election. Is it going to be a Blue Ribbon Committee? I've appointed some pretty impressive people, including... Um, Eric. Eric Hanoki. It's a good letter. I, I think it's a little strong, though. A little too strong for my case. Funny story about Al Franken... I've seen him a time or two. You know, maybe I've seen him speak live. I think I saw him being interviewed once at a Netroots Nation conference. So I saw him there in person. Uh, but it just so happens the most recent time I saw him was when I nearly ran him down on my bike. 
you know, as I said, he's a U.S. senator now, and so he spends probably a decent amount of time in Washington, D.C., where I live. And so I was riding my bike in the bike lane through the Adams Morgan neighborhood of Washington, D.C., and up ahead, the sidewalk was under construction, so you couldn't walk on the sidewalk. And so coming up ahead of me were two people, one of whom happened to be Al Franken, and the other I assumed was maybe a staffer of his, who were walking in the middle of the road to go around the sidewalk construction. And that is at exactly the moment that I was coming by on my bike with a car on my left and, you know, pedestrians on my right where they shouldn't have been, but he was there. And so I nearly ran him over and I, I just had a moment to recognize who it was and then try to convey to him with the expression on my face, hi, Al, I appreciate the work you're doing. I, you know, I'm a fan of your work. I, I enjoyed your show on Air America Radio. And I think, based on the look that he gave back, that all of that got through to him. That was my impression anyways. Okay, now the next clip, we're talking about what what might be hailed as one of the dumbest things George W. Bush ever said. It was said during the same time period that we're talking April 2006. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I know there are a lot of competitors for the dumbest thing George Bush ever said, but this is one of those things that really had legs. Uh, people continue talking about it for a long, long time to come. But what do you say to critics who believe that you're ignoring the advice of retired generals, military commanders who say that there needs to be a change? I say I listen to all voices, but mine's the final decision. And Don Rumsfeld is doing a fine job. He's not only transforming the military, he's fighting a, a, a war on terror. He's helping us fight a war on terror. I have strong confidence in Don Rumsfeld. I hear the voices, and I read the front page, and I know the speculation, but I'm the decider, and I decide what is best, and what's best is for Don Rumsfeld to remain as the Secretary of Defense. Hit him with the lie. I'm the decider, and yeah. I decide what's best. He had a little temper tantrum today, didn't he? I'm the decider. The decider. <laughs> it's like, I mean, he, you know, it's like when a band comes out with their greatest hits album, and it's awesome. You know, it's like got their greatest hits. It's like 12 tracks. And then they think, we can top that. He makes we can make a greater hits album. Because I don't know that he's had a quote dumber than this. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it, it should really go to 11. 11. <laughs> I'm the decider? He makes decidens. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of big ones. Uh, he has wow. made a lot of interesting and curious decidings. He really has. Now, to get me feeling really nostalgic, I'm going to play a clip on the same subject by a satirical presidential weekly radio address that existed for a couple of years during the Bush administration. Uh, it definitely does not exist, ha hasn't for a long time, and I've missed it ever since they stopped doing it. And now a message from the President of the United States, George W. Bush. Good morning. This week I made it clear that who the decider is in Washington. It's the president. I am the decision-maker. I make the decisions, and I decide on all those decisions. 
Then I take up my mind and conclude to a finalized conclusible. The executive decider in chief must chief until the end executing authoritates. I won't be real clear on that. My staff followizes my orderings. It's vital. As we face anemones abroads, overseasoned, that the presider and the chiefs preview all my optimums, listening to all my voices and wordings, and then confounding to a replete depletion, and, and then actify on those conflations. Thank you for Kleenexing, and God bless you. For a complete archive of the President's Weekly Addresses, visit weeklyradioaddress.com. Hey, Jay, this is uh, Tony from New Jersey, and I'm just calling about the thousandth episode. I came to Best of the Left. It must have been just leading up to the 2012 election, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I learned all sorts of things that I can't even quite put into words, but I know that the show has helped me to explain basically why everybody in the country and the world are so pissed off about so many things, uh, and I can use all that to help explain it to my colleagues and friends who maybe aren't as politically minded. But maybe an interesting story for the listeners to hear is that I, I teach an AP language and composition class, which is a rhetoric class done for English students. And uh, I had a student last year who was writing a paper about, you know, sort of feminism and things like that. And she sort of had a very kind of early understanding of feminism, wasn't quite sure what it was. But I, I gave her an episode of your show last year. And when she listened to it, she not only decided that she wanted to, you know, use some of the stuff from that episode in her paper, um, it was about sort of like male privilege and, and how we assume that like little boys acting, uh, badly in public and things like that is acceptable and all that. Uh, you know, the commentators are just sort of breaking that down. She heard that and let all of her friends hear it, so she put that into her paper, but then she also, decided that she wanted to not only go to school for English and sort of a political science thing, but she also wanted to study feminism. Completely decided she didn't want to go for pre-med, uh, annoyed all of her parents and applied to a bunch of colleges that she actually wanted to go to school for, uh, to go, you know, to go to school for what she wanted to go to school for. So, uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you did, uh, by kind of posting those things up there, uh, end up sort of changing what this young lady's path would have been. Uh, she was being sort of controlled by what her parents wanted her to do and what her father wanted her to do, and uh, now she's kind of pursuing her own path. Uh, she also broke up with her boyfriend, who was uh, a bit of a chauvinist pig, and the episode sort of proved to her that he was just as bad as she thought he was. So, uh, I don't know, small little victory, but um, that, that's what I was sort of getting when I'm thinking about the thousandth episode. So, anyway, I hope that all made sense. Thanks for doing the show, Jay. Bye. You may have noticed by now that I'm letting this show go a little long. Hope you don't mind. Uh, only one more major topic for you. Like I said, so many things were happening in these first four or five months of me doing this show that I, I, I couldn't figure out what to squeeze out, so I just put them all in. The last one is a big one. This is the Stephen Colbert speech at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. If you were around and cognizant when it happened, then you definitely remember it. And if you, for whatever reason, missed it, it is imperative that I catch you up right now. This Rachel Maddow clip explains everything you need to know, so we'll go right to it. 
every Monday, we are lucky enough to get an update from our friend David Bender on some of the best weekend political chatter out of Washington. All the good, juicy stuff we sometimes miss while we're enjoying our few days rest from the busy work week. David Bender is host of Air America's Politically Direct, and he joins us this morning courtesy of the good folks at People for the American Way. David Bender, oh, please tell me that you've got to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend. Did you go, Rachel? Uh, I had the stomach flu. Well, then, yes, I was there. Uh, yeah, yeah I, w- I was there. Uh, I, God, I was looking forward to you being there. I'm so sorry you weren't feeling well. David, but, you're uh, lying. I, I was, uh, no, I am, um, I'm the uh, president of that organization, in fact. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, uh, did all of the entertainment myself. That was uh, that was me. Um, and if you don't believe that, you, uh, you probably have been uh, also not seeing in the media because this is really it was it was an amazing event. And I and and, and truth in broadcasting here, I uh, I saw it on C-SPAN. Yeah. But what I saw on C-SPAN was something that you actually never see. These events, Rachel, have been going on for ninety-two years. Wow. This organization's been around. And they have this sort of very inside-the-beltway tradition where the, the president comes out and he pokes fun at himself. And everyone laughs along, and for just one night, no partisanship, and, and the media and the press uh, and, and the president all get along. They're best of friends. And frankly, it's nauseating. <laughs> It's really, really a disgusting event, particularly when it's glossing over the fact that this press corps has been completely silent for most of this administration on, on the very issues they're now joking about. Yeah. So somebody had the brilliant idea, and actually it's the incoming president, Steve Scully of C-SPAN, um, to invite Stephen Colbert to be the uh, the entertainer this year. So the way it played out, and, and the media has been stunningly silent on this because they got skewered too. And anyone who doesn't know, Stephen Colbert does the Colbert Rapport on, on the television machine <laughs> uh, five nights a week on Comedy Central. And he, he does a character which is essentially Bill O'Reilly. Uh, and he sends up the pontificators, and he sends up the media, much in the same way The Daily Show does. But he did it in front of 2,700 White House press corps and and friends of, of the administration, Karl Rove in the audience, and he sent up everyone, but it didn't pull any punches. And this was a very uncomfortable evening for the White House press corps you and think, for the president. You think it was significantly more pointed and more embarrassing than these things usually are? Never seen one like this. Wow. Never seen one like this. It, most of the, the discomfiture is... Uh, you know, it, traditionally, it's uh, about whether someone has gone over the top in terms of, of were they a little bawdy or raunchy. This had nothing to do with that. This yeah, but that was like a couple of years ago when Bush was like crawling around looking for the weapons of mass destruction, right? And that was just offensive because he's so incredibly insensitive and offensive. It, yes, but do you remember what happened? The press laughed at that, which yeah. was the most offensive part. That's right. You're exactly People in the right. room looked at this film that Bush brought of him crawling around the Oval Office floor uh, while we were people were dying, and they thought somehow that was funny. And this is what I was cringing at watching C-SPAN, thinking, this is, we're going to have this again. Exact opposite. And the, the blogosphere is going crazy trying to, to get people, and there are links to all this, to see what actually happened, because this was the first time in my memory that anyone has actually sat 10 feet away from George Bush and told him the truth. 
and and did it on national television. I I, I think we have a couple of clips. There's one one of uh, Colbert's lines had to do with Bush's low poll numbers. All right, this was uh, we got this one uh, cut number three, Chris. Let's hear. It. Now I know there's some polls out there saying that that this man has a 32 percent approval rating, but guys like us, we don't we don't pay attention to the polls. We know that, that polls are just a collection of statistics that reflect what people are thinking in reality. <laughs> and reality has a well-known liberal bias. <laughs> you know, that was going to be the subtitle of my book if I ever wrote one. It was going to be The Facts Have a Liberal Bias. I guess I can't use that now. Uh, oh, no, yeah, sure you can. And you can get Stephen Colbert to write a... <laughs> write a blurb about how I stole it. No, uh, I had it first. <laughs> it, it, it works better now. Um, he, he, Colbert said something about Bush sticking to his principles. He said that when the president decides something on Monday, and remember, he's the decider, he still believes it on Wednesday no matter what happened on Tuesday. Ah. I mean, th- these were the kinds of things, and Bush tried. He had, a, he had that frozen smile that, you know, you've seen in uncomfortable moments, usually of his own making. But this time, with Laura also there, this was not a happy moment. They rushed out of that room when it was, when it was over. They were not pleased. I heard the, the way I read it described in some of the mainstream newspaper reporting was that they gave kind of a grim nod to Stephen Colbert when it was over, that there was no, like, oh! Oh, you really got me there, good buddy, kind of thing. Like no, no, none of that. No, uh, you know, the, uh, Colbert says that the president said good job and tapped him on the arm, but it, you know, I think he was looking, probing for weak spots. <laughs> <laughs> it was not. It was not a, a pleasant moment. Uh, there's, there was another great line. Actually, one of my favorite line of, of the night was um, was a clip about uh, the, uh, that we have about the White House shakeup. Oh yeah, here we go. Everybody asked for personnel changes, so. The White House has personnel changes. And then you write, oh, they're just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. First of all, that is a terrible metaphor. This administration is not sinking. This administration is soaring. If anything, they are rearranging the deck chairs on the Hindenburg. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Really? I love a good metaphor joke. I mean, <laughs> you don't get that often, and that was and that's perfect. I mean, I've used, I have, have dragged that poor Titanic out of the water more times than I care to mention, and someone's finally got it right. It really is going down in flames. You know, Stephen uh, Colbert opened up his speech by saying, "I feel like I'm a, what an honor, White House Correspondents Dinner, to sit here at the same table with my hero George W. Bush. I feel like I'm dreaming. Somebody pinch me." You know what? I'm a pretty sound sleeper. That may not be enough. Somebody shoot me in the face. Is he really not here tonight? Oh, that's the one guy who maybe could have helped. It, it, it was, it, and it went, it went from there. And he never, Rachel, he never broke character. This, and, and see, this is what was interesting because usually they'll banter back and forth, and they'll, you know, if if there's an awkward moment, and and you you got to believe it was not. Uh, you could pan the room and see people looking, nudging each other, going, "Is is is he doing this? Is this really what's going on here?" What I think is stunning. Let me let me cut to the chase here. What's stunning is that we haven't heard more about this. The the blogosphere is really all over this, and yeah. it may push it out there. People should be talking about this because this is one of those moments that I think the press corps doesn't know how to report on itself. And the, you know, the New York Times had a whole piece on the on the other little comic routine that Bush did with a Bush impersonator, which you know, I think that's an oxymoron. But but the, 
the truth is, this is what people should be talking about, and yeah. hopefully uh, more of these clips are now circulating, and they will. There's a there's a website, thankyoustephencolbert.org. Oh, nice. Very Thank good. Thank you, Stephen Colbert, and people should go there and just, uh, after they've seen this, the clips are on that website. Oh, and, excellent. And the, then uh, send them a little message. Thank uh, you, StephenColbert.com. That's, you know, we... Dot we, org. The, dot org. There we go. The... Um, the clips that we got were from crooksandliars.com, which is a website that we use a lot here on the show because they, they archive uh, so much great stuff. Um, and C-SPAN uh, obviously carried it live and had the clip up on their website. There's a question as to whether or not they're going to continue to make it available and how long it's going to be up there and accessible. That'll be interesting to watch as well. But as long as this stuff is circulating in the blogosphere, it'll be uh, accessible, and I think it will catch some more attention. There's no way to get uh, no way to no way to guarantee more hits on the web than by being legitimately live out loud funny and it is and it is that i hope everyone takes a look at it now rachel i've nominated you to do this job next year are you are you up for it uh, i plan on having the stomach flu again actually <laughs> but thank you david appreciate that chronic it stomach flu. <laughs> yeah, exactly comes around every year for the white house correspondence dinner <laughs> thanks david appreciate it Now to wrap up, we're just going to have a super cut that I put together of all of the best moments of Colbert's speech. Ladies and gentlemen of the press corps, Madam First Lady, Mr. President, my name is Stephen Colbert, and tonight it is my privilege to celebrate this president, because we're not so different, he and I. We both get it. Guys like us, we're not some brainiacs on the nerd patrol. We're not members of the Factinista. We go straight from the gut. Right, sir? That's where the truth lies. Right down here in the gut. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your gut than you have in your head? You can look it up. Now I know some of you are going to say I did look it up and that's not true. That's because you looked it up in a book. Next time, look it up in your gut. I did. My gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. I believe the government that governs best is the government that governs least. And by these standards, we have set up a fabulous government in Iraq. I believe... I believe in pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. I believe it is possible. I saw this guy do it once in Cirque du Soleil. It was magical. And though I am a committed Christian, I believe that everyone has the right to their own religion, be you Hindu, Jewish, or Muslim. I believe there are infinite paths to accepting Jesus Christ as your personal savior. I stand by this man. I stand by this man because he stands for things. Not only for things, he stands on things. Things like aircraft carriers and rubble and recently flooded city squares. And that sends a strong message that no matter what happens to America, she will always rebound with the most powerfully staged photo ops in the world. The greatest thing about this man 
Is he steady? You know where he stands. He believes the same thing Wednesday that he believed on Monday, no matter what happened Tuesday. <laughs> Events can change. This man's beliefs never will. And, and, and as, as excited as I am to be here with the president, I am appalled to be surrounded by the liberal media that is destroying America, with the exception of Fox News. <laughs> Fox News gives you both sides of every story, the president's side and the vice president's side. <laughs> but the rest of you, what are you thinking? Reporting on NSA wiretapping or secret prisons in Eastern Europe? Those things are secret for a very important reason. They're super depressing. And if that's your goal, well, misery accomplished. Over the last five years, you people were so good. Over, uh, over, over tax cuts, WMD intelligence, the effect of global warming, we Americans didn't want to know and you had the courtesy not to try to find out. Those were good times, as far as we knew. But listen, let's review the rules. Here's how it works. The president makes decisions. He's the decider. The press secretary announces those decisions. And you people of the press type those decisions down. Make, announce, type. Just put them through a spell check and go home. Get to know your family again. Make love to your wife. Write that novel you got kicking around in your head. You know, the one about the intrepid Washington reporter with the courage to stand up to the administration? You know, fiction. <laughs> Jesse Jackson is here. The Reverend. Haven't heard from the Reverend in just a little while. I had him on the show. It was a very interesting interview, very challenging interview. You can ask him anything, but he's going to say what he wants at the pace that he wants. It's like boxing a glacier. Um, enjoy that metaphor, by the way, because your grandchildren will have no idea what a glacier is. Hey, Jay, it's Lee Camp. Happy thousandth episode, man. That's huge. Congrats. Let's celebrate with some hookers and blow, right? You know, like we did for the, the 990th episode and the 980th episode and 970th and, uh, you, you know, like, like we did all those times. Just kidding, man. Congrats. It's awesome. Later. Jay, this is David Pakman calling to congratulate you on surpassing the incredible milestone of that thousand show. My favorite Jay conference moment was years ago when I reached out to you and I said, hey, you have a show, I have a show, we're about the same age, we should talk about being in our early 20s and having shows. And being the antisocial guy that you are, you were just confused. Why would you want to talk to anyone? Who cares if I have a show? Uh, but somehow we persevered and we have a friendship and that's really the most surprising thing to everybody. So congratulations, Jay. It's an amazing achievement and uh, here's to the next thousand.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And, you know, I gotta say, it was nice to hear from those guys, Lee and David, called in. I, I didn't get in touch with them asking them to, to call in, so my guess is they heard about it through social media. And I, I say this because for my 500th episode, I did the opposite. I actually did get in touch with people and said, hey, you know, it's my 500th episode. Would you, you know, call in or send a message of some sort? And to be honest, it, it was it was uh, it was a little awkward. It was, it was a little bit like throwing yourself a party and didn't feel like doing that over again. So uh, thanks to uh, Lee and David for chiming in. You know, Dave's story of how we met is always so much different than mine. I, I don't know how much of the story is just in my own head, but the way I remember it, it's not that he got in touch and I was like confounded at the idea of why we would want to know each other. My memory is that he got in touch and proposed that we work out some sort of a business arrangement wherein I would promote clips of his in exchange, he would, I don't know, promote my show on his, something like that. And that just went against my code of ethics. You can't buy your way onto Best of the Left. You got to earn your way onto Best of the Left. And so I, I don't know what I said to him at the time, but that was, that was certainly what I thought. And, uh, and then at the time, you know, I checked out his show like I would any show I heard of. I started listening to it and didn't think it was that good back then and, and I, I thought I thought it was incredibly dry but not the funny kind of dry that I really enjoy it was just just regular dry and I don't know if at that time he had his uh, co-host producer Lewis on the show yet because they they sort of bounce off each other a little bit but for whatever reason they went through some sort of either actual metamorphosis or just my impression of them changed when I sort of got to understand what the show was all about. I don't know which, but after a while, I decided that I thought this show was hilarious, even though it was incredibly dry, except it turned into the funny kind of dry. And that's when he started getting promoted on this show. So I don't know if it was just my antisocial tendencies that made me come off as though I had no interest in, uh, you know, getting to know him. Although I'm sure that was part of it, I, the way I remembered it, I was I was sticking to my code of ethics, and, and that's the story that I think I'll stick with. So again, thanks to everyone for listening. It's been an amazing decade and thousand episodes of production. To be totally honest, I didn't produce all one thousand episodes, but I produced about the the last, you know, the the first hundred and the last. 800 or so, uh, and, and the story of the volunteers I had back when I had a full-time job and was working out ways to have other people help with the production is, is a whole other story. But huge thanks to all of those people who have helped throughout the years, every volunteer who has ever helped gather clips or helped produce the show or anyone who has ever given me a tip on a show I may be uh, should look at and, and you know listen to for clips or people who have sent in clips and and anyone who's ever 
written in or left a voicemail of any kind or if I've never heard from you at all but you've just been listening, thank you for being there. You guys are what make the show possible and that is going to be it for today. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. And of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, set us to see our content first so you can get all of the great clips we put out there and share them with your networks. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show for the 1,000th time from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past